everybody. Welcome back. So I'm going to start with chapter 8, the muscular system today. And we're starting on page 151 in our body structure and function book. So I'm going to start at the top. Um, so this is going to tell us about um, how much skeletal muscle makes up your body. Um, it says in a 120 pound person, about 50 pounds is skeletal muscle or the red meat of the body that is attached to the bones. Uh, muscular movement occurs when chemical energy from nutrient molecules is converted into the mechanical energy that powers the movement of protein filaments within a muscle fiber. And this causes fibers to contract. So as muscle fibers in a muscle contract, they pull on the bones to which they're attached and that produces movement in the body. Uh, movements caused by skeletal contraction vary in complexity. They can be simple as like blinking your eye or, um, you know, running. Not many of our body structures uh, can claim such great importance for this. Uh, our ability to survive depends on our ability to adjust to changing environmental conditions. And our bodies uh, have to maintain homeostasis. So changes in movement are often a major target of this homeostatic adjustment. All right, so we're going to move to page 152 under muscle tissue, um, subheading skeletal muscle. So under microscope, thread-like cylindric cylindrical um, skeletal muscle cells appear in bundles and they're characterized by crosswise stripes and multiple nuclei and each fine thread is a muscle cell usually called a muscle fiber so this is uh, has three names so skeletal muscle because it's attached to bone striated muscle because of the cross stripes or striations and voluntary because um, we can contract them voluntarily so that's not hard to remember skeletal muscle because it's going to attach to your skeleton striated because of the crosses and stripes um, and then voluntary because we can control those. Okay. So this is kind of just, um, referring back to our past chapter on muscles. Okay. So now we're going to go down to cardiac muscle. So addition to uh, skeletal muscle, the body also contains two other types of muscle tissue. We have cardiac and we have smooth. And so the bulk of the heart is made up of cardiac muscle. The heart is a muscle and the fibers in this type of muscle, uh, tissue are cylindrical, uh, and they branch frequently. They usually merge into a continuous mass of interconnected tissue, like they were woven together um, in a basket. And so this is what's going to produce your heartbeat. This is going to, it has to be a strong muscle to be able to contract and send blood from your chest all the way down to the tips of your toes and back. So similar to the skeletal muscle fibers, the cardiac muscle fibers have cross striations also. And under a microscope, they have um, dark stained bands that are cross sections of intercalated discs. And that is a bolded word. Um, where plasma membranes of adjacent cardiac fibers contact one another. So unlike skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle is considered involuntary because we cannot control that. We do not tell our heart when to beat and how to do it. It is something that is uncontrollable. Um, cardiac muscle tissue demonstrates a principle that structure fits function. So interconnected nature of cardiac muscle fibers help the tissue to contract as a unit and increases efficiency of heart mass uh, muscle in pumping blood. So this is it has to be strong enough to do its job. OK, so we're going to go over to smooth muscle. Smooth muscle fibers are tapered at each end and have a single nucleus because they lack cross stripes. They are considered non striated muscle fibers. They have a smooth, even appearance. And these are also involuntary because we don't have control over these. So these are going to be found in the walls of your blood vessels and many hollow internal organs such as your gut, urethra, ureters. And um, it's because of this location in many visceral structures. It's also called visceral muscle. So this is going to be visceral 
non-striated involuntary. Um, so your smooth muscle is going to be found in your gut. This is going to be what helps aid in peristalsis, which is the breaking down, like moving of things through your uh, alimentary canal. Um, and these are not striated. These are smooth, just like the name says. Um, so although we cannot willfully control the actions of smooth muscle, its contractions are highly regulated. So an example, the regulation promotes efficient one-way passage of material through the digestive tract or, um, or urine transport through the ureters to the bladder. Um, all three muscle fiber types, skeletal, cardiac, and smooth, specialize in contraction to generate force. And every movement we make is produced by contractions of skeletal uh, muscle fibers. So contractions of cardiac muscle fibers pump blood through the heart. The smooth muscle contractions help move blood and other substances through hollow organs. Okay, so now we're going to go down to the major subheading structure of skeletal muscle and subheading uh, muscle organs. So a skeletal muscle is an organ composed mainly of skeletal muscle fibers and connective tissue. And if you remember in the past when we talked about tissue, connective tissue is going to be the most abundant. That's what um, connects. It gives your blood that sticky feel. Um, connective tissue is very important. So fiber, fibrous connective tissue wraps around each individual muscle fiber and continues as it um, wraps around groups of muscle fibers called fascicles. It forms kind of a wrapper around the entire thing and uh, fascia is the loose connective tissue around the muscle organs that forms a flexible or sticky packaging material beneath muscles, bones, and the skin. So if you look at the chapter eight muscular system study guide that I posted on the website, it's www.learnmelpn.com. Um, we have some crash courses uh, links at the top of this study guide. And then we also have um, another link where you can see fascia in an autopsy. And it tells you how far to fast forward if you want to see what it looks like. Okay, so moving over, um, we're now on page 153. Most skeletal muscles attach to two bones that have a movable joint between them. So in other words, most muscles extend from one bone across a joint to another bone. Um, this also gives the two bones a usually more stationary um, during a given moment that movement than another. So the muscle's attachment to this more stationary bone is called its origin. And then the attachment to the more movable bone is called the muscle's insertion. So the way that you can kind of think of this is if you're stationary, um, you're going to stay where you originated. If you're, you know, say you're from a certain state, that's where you originated from. That's where you stay. That's where you're stationary. And then when you think insertion, this is movable. Um, you can say that, you know, you inserted yourself into a conversation. You moved yourself into a conversation. So the more stationary is origin. The most movable is the insertion. Um, the rest of the muscle is called the body of the muscle. And that is not um, bolded. Okay, so tendons anchor muscles firmly to bones and are made of dense fibrous connective tissue that extends from the muscle or wrappers described earlier. So in the shape of heavy cord or broad streets, tendons have a great strength and they do not tear or pull away from bone easily. So that's why um, when you see people that have injuries with tendons, it takes a very, very long time to um, recover from that. Uh, so small fluid filled sacs are called bursa. They lie between some tendons and the bones beneath them, and this was also in Chapter 7. Um, they're going to be lined with a synovial membrane, and it's going to be filled with a synovial fluid. So this creates a slippery lubricant that fills it, and um, it's like a small flexible cushion, so it reduces the friction between um, your bones, and it allows for the tendon to slide over them easier. So tendon sheaths are enclosed in some tendons. 
Um, because these tube-shaped structures are also lined with synovial membrane and are moistened with synovial fluid, they act like uh, bursae and they facilitate body movement. So now we're going to move down to muscle fibers, and we're still on page 153. So skeletal muscle fiber consists consists of elongated contractile cells or muscle fibers, and they look like long tube-like cylinders. Um, their flexible connective tissue wrappings hold them together in parallel groups, allowing individual muscle fibers to pull together in the same direction as a team. So they're going to work together. Each skeletal muscle fiber has a unique skeletal skeleton I'm sorry, has a unique cytoskeleton structure and the fibers internal framework is organized into many long cylinders, each made up of two kinds of thread-like microfilaments called thick and thin myofilaments. Um, the thick myofilaments are formed with a protein called myosin and the thin is uh, composed mainly of protein called actin. Uh, so that's definitely going to be something that needs to be memorized. Um, each shaft-like myosin molecule has a head and sticks out uh, towards the actin molecules. Skeletal muscle tissue consists of elongated contractile cells or muscle fibers that look like long tube-like cylinders. So this, um, the first paragraph under structure of muscle fibers and then the third paragraph are exactly the same. Uh, so I just kind of put a little head around those so that we're not stressing. We have more to read and it's exactly the same. Um, so on figure 8.3, it shows a sarcomere, and a sarcomere is a basic functional or contractile unit of skeletal muscle, and then we're now over on page 154. So the submicroscopic structure of a sarcomere consists of numerous thick and thin myofilaments arranged so that when they're viewed under a microscope, their dark and light stripes or cross striations are seen. So the repeating units or sarcomeres are separated from each other by dark bands called Z-lines or Z-discs. And so this is going to be stuff that you're going to see under a microscope. So um, let's move down to... Uh, we're in the second paragraph on 154. It says, note that the contraction of the muscle in figure uh, 8-3 causes two types of my uh, myofilaments to slide towards each other, which shorten the sarcomere and thus the entire muscle. So when a muscle is relaxed, the sarcomeres remain in their re resting length and the filaments maintain their resting position. So this is going back to um, flexion, dorsiflexion, that kind of thing. That's what we're um, looking at there. So now I'm going to go down to contraction of muscle fibers. Um, an explanation of how a skeletal muscle contracts is provided by a sliding filament model. And um, these are going to be in your book. You're going to have to look at these. But um, according to that model, during contractions of the thick and thin myofilaments in a muscle fiber, they first attach to one another by forming cross bridges and then act as levers to ratchet or pull the myofilaments past each other. So connecting bridges between the myofilaments form only if calcium is present. And in their relaxed state, calcium ions are stored within the smooth endoplasmic reticulum in the muscle cell. Um, when a nerve signal stimulates the muscle fiber, the ER releases that um, calcium ion back into the plasm or cytoplasm. And there's um, calcium ions that bind to small blocking proteins associated with the thin filaments and permit actin to interact with myosin. Um, after the myosin heads connect to actin, they pull, release, and then pull again. This ratcheting of myosin heads pulls the thin filaments toward the center of the sarcomere, and that produces the muscle contraction. Um, and so you can also see figure eight at the bottom of 154 in three steps. It explains that um, 
that paragraph better and it's a, a picture of how these are pulling so the contraction process of muscle cell also requires energy and this energy is supplied by glucose and other nutrients so the energy must be transformed to myosin heads by adenosine triphosphate or atp molecules which is another just a brush up of what we learned before the energy transfer molecule of the cell so oxygen is required to efficiently master or transfer energy to ATP and make large amounts available to the myosin head. Um, it, it's therefore not surprising that many muscles have high oxygen requirements. So you're going to have to have that good blood flow um, to be able to do this. So in addition to the oxygen carried to muscle fibers by the hemoglobin in blood, muscle fibers contain myoglobin, a red oxygen storing pigment similar to hemoglobin. And during rest, oxygen from the blood is stored in the myoglobin oglobin found in muscle fibers. Um, because contracting muscles require large amounts of oxygen, the, com the combined con contributions of hemoglobin and myoglobin produce the maximum recharging of energy containing ATP molecules. Um, and so in the next couple chapters, there is, I believe, chapter 12 is on blood, and that explains a little bit more in depth the um, hemoglobin, and then that will make more sense as to why um, these play a, a large factor in ATP. So hemoglobin is what is attached to a red blood cell, and this is what's going to carry um, oxygen and carbon dioxide and help to transfer it through the body. So here we see that muscle fibers contain myoglobin, and this is a red oxygen storing pigment, and it's similar to hemoglobin. So it says during rest, oxygen from the blood is stored in the myoglobin found in the muscle fibers. So this is just a transportation kind of deal. Okay, so now we're going to go over to page 155 under functions of skeletal muscle. So the functions of the muscular system are many, and obviously this system produces movement. Um, by producing continuous tension on a skeleton muscle tone, um, this system also helps maintain a stable body position or posture. And I know we've all heard that word that we probably need to be sitting right so that our posture is um, made to help us sit properly, walk properly, hold our bodies upright. Um, this is important. So it says in chapter one, then we discuss skeletal muscle and it, we also produce heat with these and helps maintain homeostatic balance of body temperature. So when we get cold, we start to shiver and our muscles start to put off um, a heat. So this is how we um, stay warm and this helps us to maintain homeostasis. So now we're going to go down to a subheading movement. So one um, tremendously important function of skeletal muscle contractions is to produce body movements. So muscle bone or muscles move bones by pulling on them. We've read this before. Because of the length of the skeletal muscle can shorten as its fibers contract to the bones um, to which the muscle attaches attaches move closer together. Um, so as a rule, only the insertion bone moves. So as muscle body contracts. It shortens and pulls the insertion board uh, bone towards the origin bone, and the ball is lifted. The origin bone remains stationary while the insertion bone moves towards it. So remember the simple rule, a muscle's insertion bone moves towards its origin bone. So you're going to insert into the origin. We'll think of it like that. Um, although we're primarily focusing on muscle shortening in this chapter, it's important to remember that muscles can also produce tension as they extend. So this occurs when muscles lengthen under tension as the muscle insertion is pulled by a load away from the origin. Um, so for example, when you lower a heavy bowling ball from your shoulder, the muscles in your arm produce tension as they lengthen and allow you to gently lower the ball. Otherwise, it would just suddenly fall. 
Um, so tension during muscle lengthening is often called eccentric contraction. So when there's a, a tension on it, it's an eccentric eccentric contraction. Um, so voluntary muscle movement is normally free and smooth, uh, smooth and free of jerks and tremors because skeletal muscle works together in a coordinating team rather than individually. Um, several muscles contract while others relax to produce an almost any movement you can imagine. So all the muscles contracting simultaneously, the one that's final or mainly responsible for producing a particular movement is called the prime mover for that movement. And the other muscles that help in producing the movement are called synergists. So you have a prime mover, it's going to be the prime one, the main one, and then you have um, a helper, and this is a um, synergist muscle. And so as prime movers and synergist muscles at a joint contract, other muscles called antagonist muscles relax. Um, so when antagonist muscles contract, they produce a movement opposite to that of the prime movers and the prime movers synergist muscles. Um, so if you're looking at uh, figure 8-7, you're going to see biceps, brachii, brachialis, triceps, brachii muscles. And all of these are involved in a bending and straightening the forearm and elbow joints. So the biceps and brachii is the prime, the biceps brachii is a prime mover during bending. And the brachialis is the helper or synergist muscle. And when the bicep, biceps brachii and brachialis muscles bend the forearm, the triceps brachii releases or relaxes. Therefore, when the forearm bends, the tricep brachii becomes the antagonist muscle. Um, so while the forearm straightens, these three muscles contract to work as a team. However, during straightening, the triceps brachii becomes the prime mover and the biceps brachii and brachialis become the antagonist muscle. And this combined and coordinated activity is what makes our muscular movement smooth and graceful and not um, very rigid. So now we're going to go down to posture. Um, posture um, is how we're able to maintain our body position uh, because of continuous low strength muscle contractions. This is also called a muscle tone or tonic contraction. So because relatively few of a muscle's fibers shorten at one time in a tonic contraction, um, the muscle is a whole, as a whole does not shorten and no movement occurs. So we're now at the top of page 156. Um, consequently, tonic contractions do not move any body parts. They do hold muscles in position. Um, so in other words, muscle tone maintains posture. Um, good posture means that the body parts are held in a position to best favor a function and balance the distribution of weight and therefore put the least strain on muscles, tendons, ligaments, and bones. Uh, skeletal muscle tone maintains posture by counteracting the pull of gravity, and gravity tends to pull the head and trunk down and forward, but the tone in certain back and neck muscles pull just hard enough on the opposite direction to overcome the force of gravity and hold the head and trunk erect. So now we're going to go over to heat production. Um, a fever or elevation in body temperature only a degree or two above 98.6 is almost always a sign of illness. Um, Decrease below normal is a condition called hypothermia. I know we've all heard this. Um, so hypothermia drastically affects cellular activity and normal body function, and the contraction of muscle fibers produce most of the heat required to maintain body temperature. So energy required to produce a muscle contraction is obtained from ATP. And we are going to keep hearing this because it's very important. So some of the energy transferred to ATP and during uh, release during muscular contraction is used to contract muscle fibers. However, much of the energy is lost as heat during the ATP transfer, and this heat helps us to maintain our body temperature to, uh, at homeostasis. 
So now we're going to go down to fatigue. I know she went over this in class, so this is definitely going to be something on the test. Um, so if muscle fibers are stimulated repeatedly without adequate periods of rest, the strength of the muscle contraction decreases, and this is called fatigue. So during exercise, a small amount of stored ATP required for muscle contraction is quickly depleted, and formation of more ATP results in the rapid consumption of oxygen and nutrients, often outstripping the ability of the muscle's uh, blood supply to replenish them. So when oxygen supplies run low, the muscle fibers switch to a type of energy conversion that does not require oxygen. And this process produces lactic acid, which may contribute to a burning sensation in muscle during exercise. Um, the simple term oxygen debt describes the continually increasing metabolism that must occur in a cell to remove the excess lactic acid that accumulates during prolonged exercise. So labored breathing after the cessation of exercise is required to pay the debt of oxygen required for the metabolic, uh, metabolic effort. Um, exercise psychologists use more of a technical name for it, and this is called excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. It's a big word. So EPOC, it directly describes what happens after exercise. So the oxygen debt mechanism is a good example of a homeostasis at work. The body returns the cell's energy and oxygen reserves a normal resting level. So basically what this is saying is if you're working out really, 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 really hard, um, you're going to get tired, your muscles are going to get fatigued, and this is when you have repeatedly used them without a, um adequate period of rest. So all of the ATP that you are using is going to, uh, it's going to deplete very quickly. And so um, what it's going to do instead is produce lactic acid. And this is what causes that burning feeling. So when they're talking about oxygen debt, this means um, you're going to start breathing heavier because your body's trying to get in that oxygen. Your body's trying to start moving that blood. Your body's trying to search for more energy. Um, so this is that continually increasing metabolism that occurs in a cell to remove the excess lactic acid that accumulates during prolonged exercise um, is oxygen debt. Uh, labored breathing after the cessation of exercise is required to pay the debt of oxygen. So this is when you're breathing really heavy and you're trying to put it back um, because you've lost it. So uh, really fatigue is not, you know, a sore muscle. It's not a sore, you know, your body's not sore. It is fatigued because of oxygen debt, um, because the ATP is burned through so quickly and lactic acid is now built up. And this is what gives us that burning, exhausted feeling. So um, now we're going to go down to role of other body systems in movement. And this is at the bottom of page 156. So uh, muscles do not function alone. Other structures such as bones and joints must function along with them. Most skeletal muscles cause movements by pulling on bones across movable joints. So respiratory, circulatory, nervous, muscular, and skeletal systems all play essential roles in producing normal movements. Um, let's see. So a person might have a perfectly normal muscle but still not be able to move normally. Um, so they might have a nervous system disorder uh, that shuts off impulses to certain skeletal muscles, which would result in paralysis. Um, an example of that would be uh, multiple sclerosis, so MS, uh, or a brain hemorrhage, a brain tumor, or a spinal cord injury. So skeletal system disorders, especially arthritis, have a disabling effect on body movement. 
Uh, muscle function then depends on the functioning of many other parts of the body. And this illustrates a principle repeated in this book often. So each part of the body is one of many components in a larger interactive system that maintains homeostasis. So it's not just um, muscles that move our body. We also have lots of other things um, in our brain, in our spinal cord that control these. So if there's damage to those or a deficiency in something, this is going to cause um, your muscles to not be able to work properly, even though they are completely fine. So now we're going to go down to motor unit at the bottom of 157. Uh, before skeletal muscle co can contract and move a bone, the muscle must first be stimulated by a nerve impulse. Um, so I also have an example of this on the website as well. Um, there's different things underneath printables um, that kind of breaks it down a little bit easier. Sometimes if I draw it, it's easier to understand. So um, muscle fibers are stimulated by a nerve cell called a motor neuron. Um, any single motor neuron can stim uh, can stimulate more than one muscle fiber. So the point of contraction or contact between the nerve ending and the muscle fiber is called a neuromuscular junction or NMJ. Um, keep in mind that motor neuron and muscle fiber membrane membranes do not actually touch uh, as there's fluid matrix between them. So, so uh, signal chemicals called neurotransmitters are released by the motor neuron in response to a nerve impulse. And the type of neurotransmitter operating in each um, neuromuscular junction is called an acetylcholine. Um, these are also described a little bit deeper in the next chapter for, um, for the nervous system. Sorry. Okay, so... The re uh, released acetylcholine moves across the neuromuscular junction and triggers events within the muscle fiber, resulting in its contraction. So a single motor neuron with muscle fibers it innervates is called a motor neuron um, or motor uh, unit. Sorry. In our bodies, we have both small and large motor units. And in small motor units, a given neuro uh, motor neuron controls only a few muscle fibers. So small motor units are common in the eye muscles and often uh, offer precise control. In large motor units, a uh, given motor neuron controls hundreds, maybe thousands of muscle fibers. So large motor units are common in the thigh and are activated in high intensity activity. So the smaller ones are going to be tinier, tinier ones. Um, and then the large ones are going to be more for like your big muscles, uh, walking, running, lifting things. So now we're going to go down to muscle stimulus on 158. So under muscle stimulus, um, it says that in a laboratory setting, a single muscle fiber can be isolated and subjected to stimuli varying intensity so that it can be studied. Such experiments show how muscle fiber does not contract until applied stimulus reaches a certain level of intensity. So this is called a threshold stimulus. It's a minimal level of stimulation required to cause a fiber to contract. Uh, when a muscle fiber is subjected to a threshold stimulus, it contracts completely. Um, on the other hand, if a threshold stimulus is not reached, the muscle will not contract. So this is uh, also referred to as an all or none um, manner. However, a muscle is composed of many muscle fibers that are controlled by different motor units and that have um, different threshold stimulus levels. Uh, although each muscle fiber and muscle, such as the biceps brachii, respond when subjected to a threshold stimulus, the muscle as a whole does not. Uh, so this fact is important in everyday life. So you could pick up a 2-liter bottle of soda or a 20-kilogram uh, 
weight because of different numbers of motor units that can be activated for different loads. Uh, once activated, however, each fibrin within or fiber within a given motor unit always responds in an all-out effort. So now we're going to go down to types of skeletal muscle contractions. I also suggest um, YouTubing these because these are explained very well when you can see them happening. So the uh, four different types of muscle skeletal muscle contractions are twitch contraction, tetonic contraction, isotonic contraction, and isometric contraction. So we're going to start with twitch. It's a quick jerky response to a stimulant, uh, and it can be seen in isolated muscles during research, but play a minimum role in normal muscle activity. So the coordinated and fluid muscular movements needed for most daily tasks, uh, muscles must contract in a coordinated, smooth, or sustained way. Um, I am going to look over at the study guide that we posted on the website and see if I can find where we put these. Let's see. Okay, um, so tetonic contractions are more sustained and steady, and they pr are produced by a series of stimuli uh, bombarding the muscle in a rapid succession, like very quickly. So contractions blend together to produce sustained contraction tetanus. Um, isotonic contraction produces movement in a joint, and the muscle changes length and the insertion in moves uh, relative to the point of origin. And those have uh, two types, and it's concentric contraction, where the muscle shortens, and eccentric, uh, eccentric contraction, where the muscle lengthens. And we had said that um, eccentric, eccentric contraction before. So example, uh, examples of isotonic contraction would be walking, running, breathing, lifting, and uh, twisting in most body movements. So um, an isometric contraction um, is a contraction of skeletal muscle uh, that does not always produce a movement. So when a muscle contraction, there is no movement. This is an isometric isometric contraction. Um, isometric means equal measure. So a muscle's length during an isometric contraction and during relaxation is about equal. Uh, muscles do not shorten during this contraction, but tension within them increases, so the muscles grow larger and stronger up to a point. And an example of this will be pushing a wall or another immovable object. So you're causing tension on your muscles, but they're not um, they're not necessarily contracting. Um, so now we're down to uh, effects of exercise on skeletal muscle. Uh, so we know that it's good exercise for us, um, and some of the benefits of regular, properly practiced exercise would include um, improved muscle tone, better posture, more efficient heart and lung functions, less fatigue, and looking and feeling better. Um, during prolonged inactivity, muscles usually shrink in mass, and this is called disuse atrophy. So you'll see this um, in a lot of patients that have... Um, that are maybe paraplegic, quadriplegic, their muscles in their legs or their arms are going to be a lot smaller because they're not using them. And this is just a shrinking mass. This is called disuse atrophy. Um, exercise can cause an increase in muscle size, and this is called hypertrophy or hypertrophy. Um, mitro, uh, muscle hypertrophy can be enhanced by strength training, and this is contracting muscles against heavy resistance. So this would be people that are weightlifting um, for the purpose of having bigger muscles. Um, so hyper, I think more bigger 
Um, so isometric exercise and weightlifting are common strength training activities and result in an increased number of myofilaments in each muscle fiber. A uh, number of muscle fibers stay the same and the increased number of myofilaments greatly increase uh, the mass of the muscle. So endurance training or aerobic training does not result in hypertrophy but increases the muscle's ability to sustain moderate exercise for a longer period. So this is where people are doing um, things daily that the goal is not to have bigger muscles, uh, not to have hypertrophy, but to be able to withstand things longer. So these people have like, a sh you know, stronger muscles within them, but they're not necessarily large on the outside. Um, so running, bicycling, and other primarily isotonic movements increase the number of blood vessels in a muscle without significantly increasing its size. And the increased blood flow allows more efficient delivery of oxygen and glucose to muscle fibers. So this allows more production of ATP used to fuel prolonged activities. And this goes back to the um, oxygen debt we were speaking about. So now we're going to go down to um, movements produced by skeletal muscle contractions. And this particular type of movement that occurs... Um, at any joint depends on the muscles acting at that joint on their origin and insertion points on the shapes of the bones involved and the joint type. Uh, muscles acting on some of the joints produce movement in several directions, whereas those acting on others produce only a limited movement. Um, so there are a couple of subheadings, and we're going to start with angular movements. So these would be flexion, extension, abduction, and adduction. So flexion um, is a movement that increases the angle between two bones and their joints, a bending movement. Extension increases the angle between two, two bones and their joints, straightening or stretching movement. Abduction is moving apart away from the midline of the body, and adduction is moving apart towards the middle of the body. So think of flexion. Literally, you're flexing. Um, we hear that a lot in people that, you know, are going to the gym. So if you're flexing your muscle in your arm, um, it's going to decrease the angle between your two bones in your arm. And this is flexion. So extension would be if you extended your hand to someone, you extended your arm out, you're going to increase the angle in between two joints, uh, two bones in their joints. And then abduction, um, think abducting, you're taking something away. You're going to move it away from the midline of your body. This will be just lifting your arm up to, um, and extending it out to someone. Uh, adduction is moving apart towards the midline of the body. You're adding something to your body. So you would be moving your arm closer to your side. Um, next, we have circular movement. So rotation is like the movement around a longitudinal axis. And this will be an example of uh, moving your head back and forth. Uh, circumduction moves apart so that its distal moves in a circle. And so this is going to be on, let's see, uh, page 161. Um, so circumduction would be if you put your arm straight out and you kind of moved your arms around in a swimming motion like a fanning motion and then we also have uh, supination and pronation so supination is a hand position with the palm turned to the anterior uh, position you're going to be uh, putting it towards the front and then pronation is the hand position with the palm towards the posterior or back side so these go along with uh, supine and prone if you were laying in a bed um, so the next we have is special movements and this is dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, inversion, and eversion. So dorsiflexion is where your ankle is tilted, um, where your toes are pointed upward. You're going to flex your foot towards you. 
your toes towards you. Um, plantar flexion would be like planting your foot towards the ground. Uh, the bottom of the foot is directed downward. Inversion is uh, the bottom of the foot turned so that it's facing the midline of the bottom body. So you would kind of tilt your foot so that you could see underneath your foot um, towards you. And then eversion is the bottom of the foot turned away so that it's facing the midline of the body. You're going to kind of point your pinky toe out. Okay, so next we're going to go to muscles of the head and neck. And this is at the very top of page 162. Uh, there's also a table 8-1, and this is muscles grouped according to their function. And some of these, I do know, she said that we're going to be on the test, uh, referring to where we would give IM injections. And this is going to be the deltoid, ventral gluteal, and vastus lateralis. Uh, we do need to know those for her. So... Um, muscles of the head and the neck, the muscles of facial expressions allow us to communicate non-verbally. Contraction of the frontal muscle raises eyebrows and allows the forehead to furrow and frown. Um, orbicularis, oris is the kissing muscle. Zygomaticus is the smiling muscle. Muscles of mastic uh, mastication are responsible for closing the mouth and producing chewing movements. Um, mastication is chewing. Two large muscles in this group are the masseter, um, which elevates the mandible, and temporal, which assists the masseter in closing the jaw. So these are going to be having to do with your mouth. Uh, two um, sternocleomastoids um, located on the anterior and anterior surface of the neck. If only one contracts, then you're tilting your head to one side. So if you're tilting your head to the side, you're working these muscles. The trapezius is going to be a, like the, your neck area. A triangular-shaped muscle that forms a line from each shoulder on the neck to the posterior side of the body. Um, when the trapezius is contra contracted, the muscles help to elevate the shoulders and extend the head backwards. Um, so now we're going to move on to muscles that move upper extremities. Each upper extremity is attached to the thorax by pectoralis major and latissimus dorma. Um, latissimus dorsi. Both muscles insert on the humerus and the pectoralis major is a flex, uh, flexor and the latissimus dorsi is an extensor of the arm. The deltoid muscle forms the thick rounded prominence over the shoulder and the arm and this is a powerful uh, abductor of the arm. So biceps brachii uh, it's a two-headed muscle that serves as a primary flexor for the forearm. Um, and triceps brachii in the posterior side of the arm has three heads and have their own origins on the shoulder girdle and insertions on the olecranon process of the ulna. Extensor of the elbow and thus performs a straightening function. So these two muscles are what are going to help you flex and what are going to help you extend your arm. Um, so now we're going to go to muscles of the trunk. Um, also, there is a massive table. It takes up a whole entire page. It's 8-2 on page 164. And this is going to give you um, the muscles of the head and neck, muscles of upper extremities, muscles of the trunk, and muscles that move lower extremities. And it's going to kind of break it down better. So I suggest looking at that and um, knowing those. Uh, so muscles that move the upper extremities. I'm sorry. We just did those. Muscles of the trunk. Arranged in three layers on the anterolateral side abdominal walls. Um, it's a very strong girdle of a muscle that covers and supports the abdominal cavity and its internal organs. So the outermost layer is the external oblique. Think outer, it's external. Middle layer is internal oblique. Innermost layer is the transversus uh, abdominis. Uh, so the rectus abdominis is the muscle that runs down the midline of the abdomen from the thorax to the pubis, um, and it protects abdominal viscera and flexes the vertebral column. So you can see these also where they showed us fascia in the um, YouTube video that I connected. 
So the respiratory muscles are intercostal muscles and your diaphragm. And we did these in a couple of the first chapters. So intercostals are the muscles between your ribs. And your diaphragm is a sheet-like muscle that separates the thoracic and abdominal cavities. And it changes in size during breathing and when air is moved into and out of the lungs. So your diaphragm is going to help you to uh, extend uh, your lungs to breathe. So muscles that move the lower extremities are iliop, uh, iliopsoas which is the flexor of the thigh, an important postural muscle that stabilizes the trunk to keep it from falling backwards when you stand. Your gluteus maximus, or outer contour of the buttocks. Adductor muscles, inner or medial sides of the thighs. These muscles adduct the thighs or bring them together. Um, hamstring muscles, which are semimembranous, uh, tendinosus, and biceps femoris. They act together to make the leg powerful. Quadriceps femoris is the muscle group that covers the upper thigh. Um, and then you have four thigh muscles, rectus femoris, and three vastus muscles that extend in the leg. And you can see those on the charts as well. Um, so the vastus intermedius is covered by the rectus femoris and is not visible. Uh, tibialis anterior is located on the anterior surface of the leg and it dorsiflexes the foot. So when you're bringing your foot um, closer to you, like pointing your, your toes up, you're using that muscle. Uh, Gastrocnemius, uh, primary calf muscle responsible for plantar flexion of the foot, and it inserts through the calcaneal or Achilles tendon to the heel bone or calcaneus, sometimes used to stand on the tiptoes, and these are also called the dancer muscles. So when you are standing um, on your tiptoe or you're pointing your toe out for plantar flexion, this is the muscle that you're going to be using. And so again, at the bottom of the study guide on the website, um, the muscles that we had to have specifically for our teacher are deltoid muscle, ventral gluteal muscle, and vastus lateralis muscle. And these are the ones that we will be getting IM injections through. So that is chapter eight, muscular system. I do suggest doing the study uh, questions at the end of the chapter and going over um, the practice test, critical thinking, review questions, um, and good luck.